is a podcast for functional ecology at British Ecological Society publication. Hi everyone, today this podcast episode will focus on functional ecology's recently published mini special feature titled Fire as a Dynamic Ecological and Evolutionary Force. I'll be chatting with Fernanda Santos, Joe Bailey and Jen Schweitzer, who served as guest editors for this special feature. So hi, everyone. How are we all? We'll start with Fernanda. Let's do Fernanda. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to the field? Hi, everyone. Yes, I'm Fernanda Santos. Um, I'm Brazilian. That's where my accent comes from. Um, so I did a bachelor's degree in Brazil in geography. So my path, as you can see, it's um, untraditional. <laughs> Unintentional and unpredictable. Um, then I came to the U.S. to do my master's in physical geography and um, did my Ph.D. at the City University of New York at the Graduate Center. My master was also at the City University of New York at Hunter College. And I was always interested in soils. So I'm a soil scientist, and but interested in ecological processes. I did my postdoc. Um, at Michigan State University with Jessica Meisel. Uh, then I did another postdoc at the University of California, Merced, with Asmart Behi. And then um, I did a third postdoc <laughs> at um, Oak Ridge National Lab, where I am right now as a staff scientist since last year. And I'm looking at this disturbance ecology and how disturbances in general, like fires, hurricane, insect uh, outbreak, affects um, soil processes, below ground processes. Remarkable. We'll come back to that. I want to ask because you've been all over the place. That's that's fascinating. So uh, perhaps we can do uh, Joe next. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Joe Bailey. Um, yeah, so I, I did my master's degree looking at the effects of fire and herbivory and their interaction on um, just the resilience of aspen forests across the western United States and started some early work thinking about Fires as selective agent and herbivores as selective agents and how those two things might interact with one another, uh, all in Aspen forests. And from there, I moved on into the fields of community and ecosystem genetics and eco-evolutionary dynamics in uh, Northern Arizona University. Um, uh, my mentor, Tom Whittem, and um, have a, a real interest in sort of the landscape level of eco-evolutionary effects of almost anything, but in particular, the interaction of climate and fire for this special feature. Wonderful. Thank you. And finally, Jen. Hi, everyone. My background is similar to Joe's in that we both went to graduate school at Northern Arizona University. Um, my undergrad, strangely, is in political science. And so I was interested in some, in some unique areas and then went on to biology and um, eco-evolutionary dynamics. And so I study have a background, diverse background in plant ecology, microbial ecology, soil ecology, and I've been interested in plant soil linkages and above and below ground feedbacks for a long time, and particularly in the context of global change. And so my lab studies this in the context of fire, but also climate and um, an invasion and lots of different areas. And so um, I'm interested in how different groups of, of species interact with each other and how that's changing and both ecologically and evolutionarily. Amazing. So quickly, I'm going to ask because it's fascinating, Fernanda, having done 
a bit of geography and gen political science. Can I ask, did you learn anything from those things that you can that you can extrapolate and that helped you along the way towards working in ecology? So we'll start with Fernando. Is there anything that I guess geography, you know, biogeography, it kind of crosses over, but is that how you got into it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a geographer um, or geography student in, in Brazil, we do have uh, just a master's of soil science, but also one course in, in ecology. So it's very interdisciplinary, So which give me the tools to work in an interdisciplinary uh, environment. So I think, um, yeah, it helped me a lot to think about different ways of looking at environmental sciences mm -hmm. and processes and uh, me being here part of this special issue is a great example of it oh and jen i'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the, the bridge you build between political science and <laughs> ecology for me i think that the things that are so similar between these is the idea of precedent and so i was interested in and law, perhaps, you know, when I was an, an undergraduate. And so it was interesting to think about how laws and policies build upon one another. And the same thing is true in science, you know, that early work, you know, builds towards the next um, papers. And I find these things to that idea of precedent and how you grow from from previous work is is fascinating. And they're very similar across both fields. Wonderful. Very well done. Um, so just before we jump into the uh, special feature, uh, I always like to ask all of our guests, if they can give me their favorite study organism or their favorite study site or both. Uh, and this can be the one that sort of developed your love of nature and being out in nature. It can be something that you just think is the perfect lab specimen or the perfect setting for looking at, you know, your research interests. We'll start with Joe. Uh, start with me. Um, <laughs> I love rivers. Um, is what I really love and uh, and how they function and how they vary. And um, and so all of my work has been just nearly all of my work has been focused on riparian ecosystems uh, across the Western United States. I don't know, it just makes me feel good to be there and to work in those systems and to uh, uh, find new ones, actually. And so if I had to say what my perfect or my ideal or uh, study organism is, it's it's cottonwood trees, uh, without a doubt. So just uh, across the Western United States. And did that come from, did that love of sort of being around rivers come from childhood? Were you exposed to that growing up or did it come later? That's a great question. My father and my brother and I did a, there's a canoe race down in South Texas called the Texas Water Safari. It's a 260 mile nonstop endurance canoe race, largely regarded as the world's toughest boat race. And um, and as uh, you know, my family, my dad did this a lot. He started in 1980. I think he's done it nine times. And uh, and in 1990, he got us involved in it. Yeah. And so you train constantly for this race and then you do it. And I've done it three times now and uh, have I was a different man then in 1996 was the last time I did it. But uh, but when you've done it, you you understand you can do a PhD and you understand a lot about <laughs> yourself and you you learn to love rivers differently than other people love rivers. And so, yeah, that's where it started was really just being on the river in a canoe with my family. Amazing. And Fernando, I'll ask the same of you. Yes. So maybe it's not fair to say I love soils, but um, but I love savannas. <laughs> I love savannas. I would love to study savannas more often, um, especially, well, yeah, it, it's related to the to fires. 
but it's uh, it's a system that I'm not so familiar with, surprisingly. So, um, yeah, I love savannas for sure. And that kind of the desire mm -hmm. to sort of study space and land and you know nature is that mm -hmm. was that ingrained in you as as a child growing up in Brazil or? Yeah, uh, yeah, my well, yeah, my 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 grandfather he was a farmer. He grew yucca. But uh, the big event for me intellectually happened in college when I uh, asked about a brick I had seen in a, in a corner of a room. And I asked a graduate student, what is this brick? Mm. And she said it was a piece of soil that was embedded in resin. Wow. And I, of course, naturally, I asked why. And she said, well, we, we, we slice those soils embedded in resin very, uh, in a thin way very thinly, and we looked in the microscope to see uh, minerals, to look at the minerals, um, different minerals, and characterize them. And those questions kept coming from me, and she gave me a small book about introduction to soil science. And I, it blew my mind that there was so much going on below ground that I didn't know about. And then I started thinking more about it, and I said, well, then that's the um, how we can solve the problem of hunger, for example. If we understand soils, maybe that's how we can uh, solve some big problems in, in society. Mm -hmm. And that's how it started. So I started um, studying soils because I thought understanding soils would be one of the solutions uh, to stop hunger. Massive thanks to whoever that student was who passed you that book and you know dedicated <laughs> yeah. the time to mm -hmm. teach you about that. That's amazing. And finally, Jen. I guess I would have to um, choose Forests in general, you know, I grew up in, in northwest Arkansas on the Ozarks and beautiful forests and big trees and and that's always been, you know, a love. You know, my parents got us out into forests, you know, every weekend to to hike and walk. And so I love working in forests and I love the the soils and the smells and the feel of being in a forest is just an amazing thing that has always been an important part of my life. Thank you. So I think we've got the background now. We can sort of dive into the nitty gritty now of this special feature. Fernanda, could you tell us in plain terms why this special feature is timely? What's the novelty of it? What what new things can we learn from this special feature? Yeah, so as everybody has has noticed, fires are happening uh, more often, uh, more strongly around the world, and we think a lot about uh, the effects of fires on human health and on ecological processes, uh, but we don't think much about evolutionary processes, and I'm I'm guilty myself. Uh, so I, I only start thinking more about it when I join Jen and Joe's um, lab meetings every Fridays, um, and that's how it came about, this idea of uh, coming together, uh, this special issue. And in addition to that, um, Jen and I were part of the uh, workshop that I organized through Oak Ridge National Lab. It's called Fire Community Dat Database Network, which we brought several researchers to talk about the impact of fire on, on soils and on ecosystems in general. So we thought that for all those reasons, um, inviting uh, researchers to join the special feature and to highlight these ideas was really important. Wonderful. Thank you. And could Jen, perhaps could you break down eco-evolutionary force as a sort of concept? What are we talking about when we link those two things together? Yeah, this is such a it's, this idea has been around for a bit. You know, as early early on, people thought about ecology and evolution together. 
Um, and then it sort of fell out of favor and we sort of started working on, on ecological questions and we started working on evolutionary questions, but rarely did those things interact. And it's been in the, in the last you know couple of, of decades when that really started to pick back up again and we started to realize that these two, these things don't happen in isolation and that what happens at an ecological scale, even under rapid, you know, modern uh, times, you know, that under quick timeframes that we can see evolution happening, you know, rapidly as well. And so that what happens ecologically affects evolutionary processes and, and vice versa. And so this whole field of eco-evolutionary dynamics sort of grew from community and ec ecosystem genetics and also just thinking about the realities of, of what systems are like. And so that's what sort of brings this, these ideas together. I think it would be good, well, to let the listeners know at least that this is a mini special feature that largely contains review papers. So me asking you guys to provide some key takeaways is a bit weird because it's kind of a summary of lots of takeaways all packaged together. But perhaps, um, Joe, you could tackle that. Is there anything in this special feature that reading it or finding out about it just sort of blew you away or anything that you'd really like to share with the listeners? Um, I think that the interesting thing about fire ecology historically is that it has generally been studied in isolation. It's we're interested in fire and its effects on. Um, occasionally, you get interacting effects. From an evolutionary perspective, it's been the same. It's been how has fire acted as an evolutionary force to shape, say, sclerotinous cones or bark thickness or resproutability or flammability. Um, and so it's all it's very focused on what are the direct consequences of fire from an ecological or evolutionary perspective. And, but as we can see in Hawaii right now, mm -hmm. just to be topical, right, is that there are these incredible raging fires across this tropical state, and they're associated with a hurricane that's 700 miles off the coast. And I think that that's one of the interesting things about about fire ecology are the is it fires a non-random force on the landscape and it interacts with climate in really unique ways and the consequences of those interacting abiotic variables fire and climate in this case can uh, can result in some really unique situations and mm -hmm. ecological and evolutionary outcomes that we we haven't really addressed and um, and I think some of that comes out in the special feature and I think it's a real sort of future for the field if folks are interested in pursuing it, thinking about what are the indirect consequences of fire as an evolutionary force. In combination, there's, I mean, just the literature that is indicating that genes in one organism can influence, you know, associated biodiversity, associated ecosystem function. So how many species are present, how productive those species are, how uh, the soils function, how those species interact. That literature is blowing up. It's becoming more and more important to our broad inference. And if we really, if we want to speak with broad inference, you know, it's important that we do understand genetic variation, its consequences, and then how does fire shape that variation on the landscape uh, directly and indirectly. And so some of that comes out um, mm -hmm. in the special feature. And I, again, I do think that that's a real frontier in the field if folks are interested in pursuing that. Yeah, thank you for that. And I'll pass the ball back to Fernanda. Some key takeaways or things that really shocked you or you thought were just, you know, fantastic science, anything like that. Yeah, what I liked about this special feature is that we didn't not only focus on, on plants and soils, but also organisms like arthropods. 
And so uh, Bieber et al. Um, looks at arthropod communities. And, and I really like that kind of a diverse type of discussions about evolutionary consequences of fires. Wonderful. Thank you. And Jen? Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I think all of the contributions are excellent in this, in this, in this special feature, and they cover a broad range of, of concepts. But the one I think that, that, that really sort of blew my mind in thinking about um, predictability um, of how we can understand the relationship between fire and, and ecology and evolution was the um, Jaggy Berry and Diaz paper. But they took a really unique approach and that they were interested in and taking this three-dimensional approach of looking at both resprouting traits and germination and plant flammability to create this um, these categories and these these ways to think about data, um, to think about these traits that have evolved in response to fire and how that can help us predict or model you know fire effects on plants. And so it allowed it allowed them to think about um, by looking at all of these things in combination, that you can find categories that some regions have evolved these really extreme fire syndromes, you know, and others are are less so. And so it allows us to to be really predictive. And I thought that paper was just fantastic to to think about it in from a broadly synthetic uh, viewpoint. So I think for the next part, I'd like to really find out a little bit about how this came to be, because based on chatting to you guys, we've got an individual who did the hardest boat race in the world. We've got a Brazilian <laughs> geography student and a student who did political sciences who have come together somehow to produce this piece of work and to commission this. Perhaps I will stick with you, Jen, for the moment. Um, could you talk a little bit about the germination of the idea and how this all came together? Yeah, it was Fernanda and I met a few years ago at a um, an NSF workshop called The Future of Fire. And so which brought together a, a lot of folks to try to think about what are the new directions and how can NSF contribute to um, uh, to this landscape. And so we met and started talking about, about fire effects and fire ecology. And then when Fernanda moved to Oak Ridge National Lab, we just started having more regular interactions. And so I think we had all read a lot of um, Huli Palsis's work, who's done a lot of writing about fire and and evolution over the years. And so we were trying to think about how can we take a more, you know, really bring together some of the the more recent work on this. Yeah, being in, as I said before, being Jen and Joe's uh, uh, meetings, and there's a lot of discussion about evolution, and and it made me realize. You know, this process happens much faster than I than I thought, uh, and it made me think. Okay, then what does that mean for ecosystems when they are affected by fires uh, frequ more frequently, and we understand more how a diversity of species are gonna change with fires and climate change? So um, yeah, and I and Joe gave this idea of provide this to our community. This piece of information uh, in the form of an of a special feature but I, i'll let joe compliment that <laughs> all i would say is that you know we were all dealing with COVID at the time and trying to figure out how to navigate our careers and how to remain productive and i think there was a lot of uncertainty and one of the things that we're real concerned about is as you move through your career and as an early career scientist it's important that you do things at the right time to sort of raise your profile and this seemed like an sort of an ideal opportunity when in some ways it's really difficult to collect data because of the pandemic that we could remain productive we could raise our profile and 
uh, on a topic that where Fernanda and Jen had some expertise and I could contribute how I could contribute. And so it was a good professional development opportunity. It was a good opportunity for the field. And, um, and so that how it all sort of came together at the right time for us all. Amazing. Just to give you some time to think of a response, I'm going to tell you the question that I want to ask you, and then I'll sort of just fluff for a little bit. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask what your, and I only want one piece of advice, so I'll limit you all to one so that we don't have people answering the same thing or taking all the answers, but one piece of advice for other researchers who might be looking at doing a special feature on any topic, what's something that's most useful for other people to know when doing this, you know, of coming up with an idea about identifying authors or potential research groups and research topics, what's what's the one thing that you thought was critical to the success of this? I think the one of the important things that I really appreciate in special features and that I that we tried to to think about as we were putting this together is really having a, a broad diversity of study systems, um, organisms, um, locations, um, so that we were trying to hit multiple places around the world and that we're in, as inclusive as we can be of, of scientists and the, and the variation that, that we all bring you know, to thinking about, about questions. And so making sure that you think as broadly as possible about who could contribute and why, and not just you know the obvious players in in an area, but people who are at various career stages and who are who can who are bringing new ideas. And so we were trying to to think about that broadly, and that was a big piece of you know the when we were thinking about authors and who could be potential co contributors that we were trying to think as broadly as possible. Thank you, Nanda. Yeah, I second Jen on that. We really try to 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 be inclusive um, as much as possible. But also my other piece of advice is to get a big, long list of potential reviewers ahead of time. Um, <laughs> uh, because, uh, yeah, it's difficult it, it, for different reasons. It was difficult to, to find a reviewer. So please, potential reviewers, be generous with your time <laughs> and help us to get, you know, the, um, the good and excellent papers out there. And Joe? It's interesting to uh, have done this a few times. And this one was more complex than some mm -hmm. and uh, and as fernanda said the the reviewers situation could be difficult i would just say that if you are invited to participate in something like this um it's a it's a it's special to be a part of these as you know these mm -hmm. papers are cited more and you are surrounded by other you know names in the field that are working hard to progress that field and so that's a good thing and that it's really important that you are reliable as a contributor. And so there's um, there's a certain level of accountability that that as a contributor you you need to have. And if you're putting this special feature together, you should expect that level of accountability from your people. And hopefully they rise to that occasion for you. It can be frustrating, but just be patient and stick with it. And usually the end product, if you're patient, usually the end product is really good. A lot of moving parts and a lot of things have to align. So well done to you guys on producing this, you know, great compilation of work. So just you before I ask the question. Frank, I really appreciate your time <laughs> too, so. Well, thank you very much. Well, yeah, I think we can all give ourselves a pat on the back. <laughs> Me, the smallest one by far. Just before we move to the future, I'd like to ask you questions about the future of the field, the future of, you know, what your impression is of what needs to change, but perhaps we'll just stick with the special feature. And I'd like to ask 
maybe I won't ask everyone all in one go, but is there any topic, any paper, any subject that you wished was included in this special feature? Or if there was going to be another special feature down the line, what would you like to see included in that? Or where should, you know, what's the next hot topic that should be there? What's interesting, I think, about fire is that it's a non-random force on the landscape. I mean, it can just pop up someplace randomly, but in general, if it's hot and if it's dry, the probability of having fire there is increased relative to someplace that's, say, cool and wet. Well, these same climatic gradients are the gradients that drive the evolution of traits like early phenology or variation in productivity or you name it. <clears throat> if fire is non-random, um, on the landscape, and they are eliminating species that have adapted to hot, dry conditions, say, uh, because they're non-random, then they could be eliminating exactly those traits in species that might allow them to persist under things like climate change, the traits we might need to use as you know, resilience traits or sustainability traits or restoration traits or and that's something we just don't know about yet. And so getting into that larger landscape of interacting effects with fire, the interacting evolutionary consequences of fire, um, I think has a lot of potential uh, mm -hmm. across systems to really begin to understand it. It requires a landscape level perspective it, that are, it's difficult for a lot of folks to do, but, but um, I think it's worthwhile. So that's what I would say. Yeah, I would like to see more. I wish I could see more papers, you know, uh, covering a, bro a broader <clears throat> range of uh, ecosystem types around the globe uh, that we unfortunately couldn't for different reasons. Yeah, uh, for example, you know, places in Africa, places in Asia, even more places in, in, in the Americas. Um, yeah, I'd love to see more of that in the future. I'm trying to think about how we can incorporate evolutionary processes into models and how we can think about the, the dynamics of eco-evolutionary relationships um, and as we're predicting ecosystem responses to change. And that there aren't very many people doing that because it's obviously a very difficult challenge mathematically to, to do some of this. But but I think we're going to have to start thinking about these, these things together as if we're going to be able to make predictions or at least trying to um, help us think about where we can go next and how systems might be responding in a changing world. Thank you. So that really does bring me on to the next part of the question, which is forward-looking the future. There are some recommendations provided in this special feature, I believe. So I want to know what changes you hope this special feature will precipitate. It's impossible to talk about the scale of the change required, but to just touch on a little bit, what are we staring down the barrel of and what sorts of things need to happen to avert total disaster <laughs> big question let's just break it down to any changes that you hope the special feature or recommendations anything that you hope will get picked up and utilized sure i, I think that um one thing that i hope that that folks will will build upon are, is the need and fernanda can follow up on this um as well but there's a there's a real need for um, combining databases and trying to think about really aligning all the diverse data streams that are out there um, about soils and about plants and their responses to fire and even just basic fire information, how much coverage was the intensity and severity of the fire. And this, um, in the summary 
um, article, um, Pranand put together this this beautiful table that you know showed here are all the different databases that are there, and how can we align these in particular ways so that that we can have an approach that's useful for everyone, so that we're not having to look at eight different places to find um, information, and that we can there can be a data repository you know, that could be something that is um, accessible by everyone. And I'll let Fernanda follow up on that. She's been working on this very, very intensively. Yes, absolutely. So when we talk about fires, just to start with, it's complex. Uh, are we talking about fire? Are we talking about forecast? Are we talking about modeling? Uh, so, so just to talk about the topic of fire, it's very hard to bring everyone together in a centra centralized way. So uh, so we wanted to at least have that put in, in ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, it would be great if we could come together as a community and try to come up with a framework and tools that will allow us to bring all this data together so we have a centralized place to, to, to look, upload the data but also uh, contribute. Uh, to the da to data, but also to uh, analyze the data and inform all these analysis would inform a new framework that we could base on and do more work and understand more about the impact of fires on uh, on ecosystems. I love this idea because it is perfect example of the scientific principle of like equality of access to data. And you know, this is my English literature degree coming out, but I, I've got a I've got an image in my head of a sort of fountain, right? It, like you said, it's really hard to have interdisciplinary, like everyone involved all together communicating. But if you have this pool of knowledge and data that, you know, whoever, governments, fire marshals, biologists, ecologists can all access when they need it, and that's constantly being replenished, then that's, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And that's wonderful. Joe, would you like to add anything? I think that it is spot on. Um, what both Jen and Fernanda have said, I, we need to be doing more science that deals with broad inference mm -hmm. and figuring out what are the barriers to broad inference and trying to knock down those barriers to broad inference. And a lot of that has to do with experimental design. A lot of it has to do with, you know, over extrapolating your results. And, and, and so I think this, you know, what Jen and Fernanda are talking about are kind of bringing folks together so that we can establish new experiments or new approaches that allow us to speak with broad inference about the topic of fire and i and i frankly i think that's what needs to happen we need to build new experiments that allow us to speak with broad inference not rely on old experiments that's all i have to have to add to that so i think building the databases is a great first step mm -hmm. i was wondering sort of where along the line we are with fire ecology are we does it feel like a field that's sort of just starting to sort of sprout? Is it where, where, where in the historical sort of timeline of, you know, this discipline are we? Are we behind? Do you feel? Are we describe the frontier? What it's like? Where it's come from? Is there a long history of people studying fire as a dynamic eco-evolutionary force, or is this quite a new concept? I, I, there's a long history of fire ecology, mm. and of thinking about fire on the landscape I, the evolutionary perspective in fire is now folks will argue with this um but is i think it's relatively new we you know where it's old is again in thinking about the traits that are that have allowed species to adapt to fire 
that's the the evolutionary perspective that has history uh, the field is opening up if folks are willing to take up the challenge of integrating eco-evolutionary dynamics i think there's a lot of great questions to be addressed the only reason i asked that was because you know you, you mentioned about how great it was for exposure during covid and i'm hoping there's some right phd students who are listening along to this now and you know will understand that this is a very exciting and innovative and new thing to that they could pick up and look at no i just want to uh, reinforce the idea that yeah fire ecology is a I would say quite a strong uh, discipline out there. Uh, there's a lot of uh, folks looking at uh, the impact of fires, but from a management perspective. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. think of prescribed burning, for example. And yeah, I'd love to see one day a uh, Department of Fire Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we, which brings the point that yes, we need to have more students being trained on this field. Um, and I hope they gets they are listening to this mm -hmm. uh, podcast and are inspired to um, to pursue this field. Thank you. So if that's all, um, I think just before we, we wrap up this episode, uh, I'd just like to ask if there is anyone or anything that you guys would like to shout out, both helping you with this special feature, but also just helping you in your journeys. I'll pick on Jen. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of of folks to to shout out to. There are some so many amazing people who have been um, important inspirations, you know, for me as a as a researcher and, and human being. Um, but in the context of fire and eco-evolutionary dynamics, you know, I think someone whose whose work has always been an inspiration and, and has done some really important work in thinking about this. And we were in respect to the question that you just asked, you know, where are we in the history? You know, someone who's really built um, on this and that has really been paving the way that I think is is ready to explode it is um, Hulu Palsis. As I said, again, this person has been working, you know, really diligently for many years and thinking about how we think about macroevolution and, and microevolutionary processes in the context of fire. And so um, has been a real inspiration in terms of thinking about how we can do this. That's where I would start. Yeah, I'd like to, to thank the, um, the handling editor, Charles Fox, for, you know, also guiding us and help us through this. And also to you, <laughs> Frank, to help us, um, yeah, handling uh, the entire process, which was yeah, quite new to me. And of course, you know, in, in a way, I, I would like to thank, you know, uh, all my mentors that um, helped me to, to be here contributing mm -hmm. to the science. Uh, Jeffrey Bird, who was my PhD advisor, Jessica Meisel at Michigan State University, who was my first um, mentor as a, uh, when I was a postdoc, mm -hmm. Asmar Behi, um, and Colleen Iverson here at Oak Ridge National Lab, who has also been a mentor in helping me and, and has been very supportive of all the research that I've been doing here. Amazing. Thank you. And finally, Joe? A tough question in some regards, uh, but the folks who really helped develop the fields of community and ecosystem genetics and eco-evolutionary dynamics, it's a real, you know, it's a relatively new field. The first paper on community and ecosystem genetics was 2003. That came, was Tom Whittem as the lead. It was his lab. Uh, Mark Hunter was also a part of that linkage between, you know, how do gen genes in one species impact biodiversity and ecosystem function. And so, you know, their empirical and theoretical work is foundational to what we're doing now. I think 
Andrew Hendry and Mike Kennison's work on rapid evolution is really important to what we're doing now. And it's clear that evolution can occur on really, really rapid timescales. And, and so the integration of sort of rapid evolutionary processes and community and ecosystem genetics is fundamental to this idea of fire as an evolutionary force. And so if I was throwing a shout out, I, you know, that's off the top of my head, that's where I would lay it down at, you know. Well, thank you for that. As we wrap up, I'd just like to thank all of my guests today on the podcast and the guest editors for this special feature. So Joe Bailey, Fernanda Santos and Jennifer Schweitzer. Thank you for this amazing piece of work. I'd like to thank uh, contributors as well to the special feature. You know, it's not possible without the people providing the research. I'd like to remind our listeners that links to the special feature and the papers within will be provided in the description of this podcast episode. And yeah, all that's left is just to say thank you so much, guys. It's been a really enjoyable talk. Thanks to Functional Ecology and to you, Frank, uh, just for the opportunity and the help. We really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, and all the co-authors who published uh, in our special feature.